Amato's fifth quarter is partnered with the Inner Sanctum. The Inner Sanctum, founded in 2020, is the new ball game in sports journalism, which aims to take you behind the closed doors of sporting clubs around the country in an effort to tell the stories of those on the field. Visit the Inner Sanctum at www.theinnersanctum.com.au as well as following them on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn. The Inner Sanctum, unique interviews, unique content for you. This is Travis Stokes. This is Greg Oddy. This is Carson Edwards. This is Brett Maher. This is Dale Kicker. This is Eugene Greenwich. This is Kevin Brooks. This is Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Daryl McDonald. This is Sam Jacobs. This is Cal Brooks. And you're listening to Amato's Fifth Quarter. Welcome, welcome, welcome everyone to episode number 13 of Amato's Fifth Quarter. I'm your host Dan and 13, well what do they say about 13? It's unlucky for some but trust me, not for Amato's Fifth Quarter because tonight to celebrate our 13th episode we've got a very, very special guest coming on the show. Someone that I've been keen to have on for a very long time and to be able to sit down with him and just have a chat about his career was was absolutely amazing. Tonight, my special guest from the NBL is the Black Pearl, Calvin Thomas Bruton, who is one of the most iconic figures and one of the most important figures in this league's history. He's been here from day one. He was a part of the Brisbane Bullets in 1979 for that first ever NBL season. You know, as good as the NBL is and as as much as it's grown to now be a world-class league, someone like Cal Bruton, who who started that foundation and, and, and... you know, was a part of that league growing and, and he's always going to be a strong, strong part of that history. Just to, to sit down and have a chat with him and listen to the stories of the league and listen to the stories of his life was absolutely fantastic. Um, he's had a lot of setbacks in his life, had a, a you know, a tough 
a tough childhood. He, he, you know, he lost his father at a young age and, and things weren't always easy for him. And, and for him to be able to go through that and to lose his father in such tragic circumstances and, and now to, to, for him to, to have the career in basketball that he has now and still be so optimistic and so positive and, and such an inspirational, motivational figure is just testament to his resilience and his character because he really does... He is such a, a lovely guy to talk to and he's so positive and just listening to him, how passionate he is about basketball and bringing up the next generation is really, really inspirational. So I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. But just want to put out a quick warning. Some of the stories he talks about growing up and with the tragic death of his father may be considered disturbing for some people. So I just want to put that warning out there before you do listen to this episode but let's talk about what he achieved in the NBL. So as a player, he played for the Brisbane Bullets, the Geelong Supercats, the Perth Wildcats, and the Hobart Devils. And as a coach, he led the Geelong Supercats, Perth Wildcats, Hobart Devils, Canberra Cannons, and finished up with the West Sydney Razorbacks in 2007. Played a lot of his career as a player coach as well, so that's another question I asked him. He played 250 games, assembling 4,828 points, 684 rebounds, and 973 assists. He's a one-time championship player in 1985 under Brian Curl there at the Brisbane Bullets. He's a two-time All-NBL first-teamer in 1983 and 1984. He is an NBL scoring champion in 1979, so the first ever NBL scoring champion. He's a part of the NBL 20th anniversary team as well as the NBL 25th anniversary team. And uh, he was also a part of the Australian Boomers 1986 FIBA World Championship squad. And as a coach, he is the first ever Perth Wildcats NBL Championship coach in 1990 there. And he was also the coach of the year in 1982. And he is, of course, in the NBL Hall of Fame. So he is an absolute icon of the league, one of the foundation members. And as I said, just to sit down and have a chat with him was a dream come true. So without further ado, let's bring the man on. It is the Black Pearl Calvin Thomas Brute about to come onto the ground. Out to Bruton, three-point attempt from Calvin. The Wildcats are in front by one. There's Carl Bruton exhausting this crowd. Come on, he says, do it some more. Now the man is Bruton, and he gets it. Carl Bruton gets it. That's the ball game. Carl Bruton's the hero. Welcome back to Amato's fifth quarter, and today my special guest is the one and only, the Black Pearl. It's Calvin Thomas Bruton from the NBL. Cal, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, you're welcome, Dan. Thank you for having me. Anytime. You spent nearly 30 years involved in the NBL, and you are one of the originals. What have you been up to since you, you last coached in 2007? Let's see, where do I start? I've been running my own basketball program, but prior to that, I went into the car industry, uh, uh, once the cannons folded in 2003, there's uh, got jobs, so each and every one of them were able to secure futures in the NBL. Um, and I stayed here in Canberra and um, went into the car industry with uh, Mercedes-Benz was my introduction. Started selling the, the vans there and then moved into used cars and did pretty well and graduated to the Maserati brand there. And then... Uh, um, I had an opportunity to go to Lexus. They recruited me, and I sold Lexus for about 18 months uh, and got an offer to coach West Sydney Razorbacks again. So that uh, that got me going. And then 
uh, back in the league for a year. And then uh, after that season was finished, um, I moved back into the car industry with Audi. I became the salesman of the year for Audi Australia. Kind of enjoyed that, plus the holidays, plus the money, and uh, and stuck with it. So I graduated to Volkswagen and, uh, and finished off there in 2014 and set up Bruton Basketball, which uh, was a program designed to help kids uh, develop the fundamentals of the game and, and create pathways for them to take their basketball to wherever they wanted to go. And we focused on indigenous communities and disadvantaged kids uh, because they're the hardest ones to, to get opportunities for. So um, got that going and it's been going ever since. Uh, basically, it's, I've uh, looked at collaborating with a lot of top organizations uh, and working for them and with them. Uh, AFL Sports Ready has been the, probably my main vehicle, uh, which uh, provides education and opportunities and employment opportunities for youngsters, uh, and again, particularly in the indigenous space. Um, I'm now considered the master coach there, and I look after all the young kids around the country, uh, again, establish opportunities for their future, but uh, I look after the graduations, and it's so nice to, to see those things come to fruition. And then I just travel around the country, um, in every state and territory, I'm proud to say, uh, uh, I haven't uh, uh, missed a beat and been going into the indigenous communities there and putting in my work and taking my sons along with me as well as my daughter and we've proud to say that we've covered the whole of australia and uh and we continuing to go forward with that as uh i'm looking to uh, launch a very big project shortly so that's that's it in a nutshell <laughs> well that sounds exciting you've definitely done a lot and the car sales industry that's that's a tough gig isn't it oh man I had a little slogan, I was the man with the plan to put the keys in your hand. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> so I kind of put in a, a lot of work. Uh, again, 13 years, I had a couple more children during that period. Uh, two young boys who are now 14 and, and 16. And, uh, you know, the car industry, you, you, you go week to week. You got, you got to build up a client base. Uh, you got to be lucky enough if you change dealerships that the clients want to follow you because you gave them such good service. And that was my motto. I more than, more than looked after the people that I sold cars to. And to this day, they still call me looking for a deal. So I'm connected with the Lenox uh, group, which uh, also collaborates with me through my AFL Sports Ready program that I work for. And we are now training up young kids to have uh, employment in the service area, in the sales area, in the business admin. And that's starting to grow. And, um, and the cars, um, you know, I like my cars. My, my dad was a mechanic. Um, my wife and I both drive Audis because we, we feel safe and comfortable in them. And uh, and my car, not that it's new, it's actually 11 years old and it has almost 290,000 kilometers on it. Because <laughs> I take it everywhere. I've driven to Queensland and Melbourne to Tassie. It's done the rounds. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm proud. I, I, I enjoy it people and obviously the car industry provides that particular vehicle uh, to uh, open up a whole lot of doors and corporates as well as uh, you know the everyday mom and dad and then next thing you know you sell the car to their children so yeah pretty proud of my association in the industry and it sounds obviously now you call Australia home and it sounds like you're really 
you've done your part in the NBL and now you're really giving back to, to communities and people. So that's that's fantastic to hear. Yeah, and I think that's uh, what life should be about. You know, um, you know I've been very fortunate and, and lucky to to have had a good career, both playing, coaching, uh, managing. Uh, I had a brief stint to try to uh, establish myself as an owner in the league. It was pretty unfortunate the way it all went down. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm proud of my... Uh, my roots here in Australia, and, and more particularly in Canberra, um, I've been coaching thousands of kids. I think we still want to take the 40,000 mark of kids that we've associated ourselves with. That's including, obviously, all my sons who are involved in basketball as well. Uh, but CJ, you know, at the highest level, you know, working with the Australian team and also with the Brisbane Bulls and NBL. But my other sons, Elliot, uh, you know, was a uh, director of coaching in and uh, Tyree recently, but now he's uh, doing the coordination for the PCYC, which we're trying to establish a program there uh, throughout the north of New South Wales and then all on continue, hopefully, around the country. Um, we also got my son, Austin, coaching Guilford College in Perth, and he's working in the employment industry, uh, uh, supplying opportunities for young kids. And he recruits kids from the Kimberleys, uh, Aboriginal kids, to come down on scholarship uh, into Guilford College in Perth. And we basically run camps for those kids. Uh, usually I use it as an opportunity to bring my whole family together. And uh, last count, it was uh, 17 of us. Cool. So, so we, we're growing. <laughs> and it sounds like you guys are a very tight-knit family and you all make you all make a, a big contribution into communities. Yeah, very proud of my crew. You know, so you have five, five boys and like I said, my daughter, she's in social work. She's uh, uh, entering in her last year of university, graduating with a social work degree. So I'm pretty, pretty excited for her. And, uh, yeah, we just love getting in the cars. Uh, you know, like, for example, CJ and Austin uh, would fly. Austin would fly to Brisbane and then jump in the car with CJ and then drive down to Tyree. And Ellie's already there. And then my daughter and I would drive up and then my wife would fly to two boys in and uh, and we'll just run a camp and then we'll drive up to Queensland and, and book out a holiday resort and we'll stay for a week and uh, and just get to you know enjoy the family and, and to me that's that's the fuel that's the fuel that I, I put in my tank you know? I'm pretty excited when I see them all so, yeah that's that's beautiful that's what it's all about isn't it yes yes now we you know I miss my family in the states I have two younger sisters and you know unfortunately I lost my mom in 88 and my dad, when I was really young, seven years of age, and uh, and so you know, my mom told me I had to be her little man, and I I took pride in, in being that guy and uh, looking after my two younger sisters and and my mom. And eventually, I was I didn't make my goals, my ultimate goal, which was to play in the NBA. But uh, you know, Australia became a, a pretty a good second second option, and, uh, and I had the, the good fortune of bringing my mom out here three times every time we moved. Like from Geelong to Brisbane to Perth, and she she had an opportunity to see all three spots before she passed, and um, and now you know my boys they've taken the mantle. I have you know five grandkids plus two step grandkids, and uh, and we're all like very very close group. So so yeah, we hope that the family continues to grow and continues to to give back and do good things for the community. You did mention your your parents, and you were raised in Brooklyn, New York. But you had to grow up very quickly because you lost your father in tragic circumstance at a young age. I did read your book, The Black Pearl, No Regrets, and the first chapter really hits you. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
wrestling with my my ghost rider on that and you know she had me to tears when I was you know reliving the story but yeah my dad was uh, only had one hand and when my uh, sister that's only 10 months younger than me was born my, my dad had fell in the oil pit and, and got burnt pretty badly um, and uh, as a result of that my mom was you know pregnant when she went in the shock and my sister is albino she's uh, intellectually handicapped and you know we only 10 months apart so we were very, very close then when my baby sister was born my mom was nine months pregnant and my dad was killed so yeah that was a real real tough one but um yeah my my dad played sport with me taught me at an early age about baseball which i was you know drafted to the new york mets back in 1972 and um and it was it was interesting in that he only had one hand he had lost his hand early and so he used to keep a magnetic glove for his tools I used to try to go out there on a Sunday afternoon and help him underneath the cars my mom used to drag me out no you're not going to be no car mechanic get out from underneath that car you know but then my dad would play catch with me afterward he'd catch the ball in his right hand put the glove and ball underneath his left arm pull the ball out throw it back to me and then slide his hand back in the glove and you know he'd tell me throw your best throw it hard and I'll throw it hard and inaccurate and break a window and he went that's a good arm son don't worry i'll fix that up <laughs> so so i played baseball and uh, and then of course um uh, after i lost him i had a mentor who became like a, a stepdad and he taught me how to be a quarterback in the pop one football league and i went on to become the mvp of that league and and during that time i was always playing basketball because it was the only sport you can actually play by yourself and and, and amuse yourself and you know, I drew, I drew criticism from my neighbors because I was bouncing the ball at all hours, <laughs> trying to perfect my ball handling skills. And they was like, stop bouncing that ball. And I, was like, yeah, I think you better go to the park from now on. <laughs> or they're going to run us out of the neighborhood. So, yeah, I I love sport. And my dad was probably the, the one that just triggered that in me uh, at such an early age that, you know, you play sport and you stay healthy and it keeps you uh with good good company too you know that's that to me was the key yeah because i mean your father the way you you wrote he seemed like such a an honest hard-working family man he was he definitely was I mean, he he worked seven days you know he worked his, his mechanic shop during the week and then on the weekend he would do private family cars and other people's cars and uh and he knew a car inside out he was a country country man he was from south carolina and he came up with a very big family he was the oldest of of 11 and um my grandfather was you know coming out of slavery and uh, had land you know that he worked for uh, that he earned and was able to raise his kids on that land and then my dad was the first one to break out from the farming i remember every summer going down and having to pick cotton out in the fields and whatnot until i got stung by some bees and my mom was really unhappy that they had me out there but um my dad packed up and moved to new york and got my you know my mom and she she was a nurse in her early days before she started having the bubbies and uh, and yeah it was just us three until my younger sister came along after my dad died so we're very close every every sort of probably month or, or two months we would all meet at a park and Fathers, brothers, and sisters would be there, and we'd play a have a picnic and play a softball game and what have you. So, so yeah, I'm very proud of my upbringing. You know, everybody knows that New York is a tough place to grow up in, 
But, you know, when you got family and, and you stick tight to each other, which has been my uh, sort of model here, you know, then you can always lean on each other and, and support each other through the tough times. And, and that's what we do. And, uh, yeah, my, my dad was, was that guy. He, he, he looked after everybody. So I'm, I'm proud that I picked up a, a, a couple of his positive traits. <laughs> Absolutely. Now you're implementing them yourself in your own family here in Australia. Yeah, I like that. And and my attitude is always my altitude is how high you want to rise, and I I try to create opportunities for my family to rise. And uh, you know, very proud of them, all each and every one of them. You know, obviously CJ is uh, our pinup guy because of what he's been able to do under difficult circumstances as well. And you know, he's a dad of three boys and and a beautiful wife, and um, you know, he's striving to be the best possible coach he can be. And, and my oldest son, Elliot, who actually is my stepson, I, he's been with me since he was 18 months old. And, uh, you know, he, he's, he calls me Pops. I've been, he actually just changed his name recently to, to Bruton. And, um, yeah, we we just kind of look after each other. And that's the key. And Austin was born here. He was the first of the Aussies. And then, of course, uh, three more came after him. But uh, uh, he was born uh, early and he had joined us. And, you know, in Melbourne because they couldn't handle it in Geelong <laughs> and they had to put the light on him and I think they toasted him up a little bit too long because <laughs> 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 he's the darkest one in the family so we call him Cheeks and, uh, and he's oh, that's awesome. do, some, do some great things as well. You know, he's you know, got a scholarship to go to the U.S. and won a national championship at the same junior college that CJ did at Indian Hills. So, so yeah, they've done some great things and, um, and now they like you said, they, we all give it back and, and we're all proud to do something. Now, that's awesome. Absolutely awesome. What about your high school basketball at Springfield Gardens? You then attended Wichita State University on a basketball scholarship. What are your memories from those days? Well, um, you know, like I mentioned, I played all three sports in high school and I was drafted, had a chance to sign a contract. New York Mets um, for no forget it, for eighteen thousand dollars back in nineteen seventy two, and my hey, mom wow. said no. She said you you have to go to school, and that eighteen thousand would have paid for a house. You know, because my mom struggled after my dad died, and we moved about two or three times because we didn't have. Obviously, he was our sole source of income and until we settled. Um, as my mom sued the petrol station in which he was killed at, um, and she was successful, so. She was able to buy the house, but then we had, you know, trouble trying to maintain everything from that point. So I thought this was a way of taking care of my mom. I said, nah, you're going to be the first one to go to college. And I was hoping to stay at home and, and go to Hofstra University or somewhere near, but my mom wanted me out. She said, no, you need to get away from us. So I ended up um, playing in the, like an AAU type league with um, a coach that uh, was, uh, Steve Shallon was his name that had all the top players from New York City playing on his team called the Salukis. And I was able to, uh, to submit a spot in that team. And uh, we played against Dr. J. We played against, you know, Lloyd Free. You name Fly Williams, all the top New York City players. And um, I was able to grow in that. And, of course, when the scholarships went around, a gentleman by the name of Rudy Jackson, who was probably one of the top high school players in New York, had over 350 scholarship offers, and Wichita State 
came to watch him play in the tournament. And I was kind of lighting up at the same time. And um, they told Rudy, introduced Rudy to me. And, I mean, introduced me to, to them. Rudy did. And, of course, they uh, they said, well, Rudy, anything we can do for you whilst we're here, you know? And he said, well, I really like to go to school with my man Cal. <laughs> and, and if you can do that, I'll be very happy. And, of course, they wanted to keep him happy. And they offered me a scholarship to go to Wichita with Rudy. So... We both took a summer trip out there to go visit, and um, we we stayed in a, a sort of apartment-type situation, and of course, uh, they put us to work, and we had to take the entrance examination, um, and Rudy flunked it, and he wasn't able to get into Wichita. I passed it, and of course, he got sent to a junior college, Hutchison, about, you know, 45 minutes down the road, and... Um, and of course, <laughs> the coach was just livid that, you know, he recruited Rudy and he was all keen on him. But now he's got this little five foot eight inch guard <laughs> that's a foot shorter than Rudy. And he said, that's not what he bought. I bargained for him. But I was able to hold my own. Uh, that was the first year that freshmen were eligible to play in the uh, NCAA. And as a freshman, I was able to start on the varsity team. And from then, I, I concentrated fully on on uh, basketball. Um, I did have a baseball opportunity there, but unfortunately, the football team was killed in a plane crash the year before. Oh, wow. So they, they dropped the baseball program to uh, reintroduce the football, and uh, I never got a chance to play baseball anymore. So that that's what became my, my key sport. Um, I played around the clock. I played in summer leagues. I just tried to get better every day. Uh, at the end of my freshman year, I was able to represent the U.S. in Brazil with a couple of notable NBA players, uh, Junior Bridgman for one. Uh, Junior Bridgman's the guy that uh, set up uh, I can't think of the, a Wendy's restaurants. And he became oh, a wow. multi, multi, multi-millionaire. I'd love to catch up with him again, actually. <laughs> Just think about it. Yeah, that's <laughs> massive industry. Yeah, so he's, uh, and now he's owns part of Coca-Cola. So this is one of the players that didn't make a lot of money playing in the NBA. He played with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Milwaukee Bucks when they won the championship and all. And um, and then he set up a Wendy's restaurant in Geelong, actually. Uh, it only lasted, in, I think it was probably 1981, maybe. It only lasted for uh, for probably a year and a bit, you know, before they moved the franchise. But he always thought that Wendy's was the best hamburgers ever <laughs> until Jack Howard came along, of course. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I enjoyed my uh, uh, my time, you know, repping Wichita State there. And then, of course, my sophomore year, we tried to get Rudy back. And I think they did some illegal recruiting with him. And we got put on probation for my sophomore and junior year. So we didn't, we weren't allowed to participate in any postseason tournaments. And then my senior year, we were able to uh, actually make a run at it. Uh, we brought in a, a young player by the name of Lindbergh Cheese Johnson from New York. Uh, he was an excellent player. And as a rookie, he helped uh, give us that impetus to, to win the Missouri Valley Conference that year. And then the following uh, uh, NCAA first rounds, we took on the Michigan, University of Michigan. And Ricky Green and Phil Hubbard were the stars. Ricky Green became a top three draft pick, I think, eventually in the Golden State Warriors. I had to play him. I knew he was an All-American and all that, so I jumped on him. I thought that was going to be my ticket into the NBA, and 
outplayed him the whole game, held him to a three for 19 shooting night, but then he hit the game winner. <laughs> and that was lights out. Uh, they beat us by one, and then they went on to play in the NCAA championship game. So I kind of relived my career through him. And um, and I went back to New York. It was, uh, it was tough. Um, I didn't get drafted. I didn't have any jobs. I was hoping that someone would see me in the summer leagues, but nothing happened. And I went back out to Wichita to finish school, and um, and I got an opportunity to try out with the San Antonio Spurs. So that that took on a, another challenge. Um, that was in 1977, and uh, I had a chance to team up with George Gervin, the Iceman, and Dr. K, Larry King, Keenan, and Captain Late James Silas, and uh, Louis Dampier. All these guys who just came from the ABA because. NBA and ABA had merged that year. And I thought I would be a guy that could stick. Um, they had Mike Gale, uh, another top guard. And I ended up uh, uh, missing out after playing four exhibition games uh, for the Spurs. And uh, so I can probably say I'm probably the first Australian to actually represent the Spurs after what Andrew played there, Shane Hill, uh, obviously Patty Mills. He led the wire. You name them. Oh, I was the first that probably nobody really knew about, but I didn't play any regular season games. But, shoot, I definitely had a uniform on and played at the New Orleans Superdome against Pete Maverick and um, played the Houston Rockets against my idol, Calvin Murphy, and Rudy Tom Jonovich, another legend. And then I played the Denver Nuggets against David Thompson and Matt Calvin and Dan Lissell. And, and, um, and one of the games, I actually played pretty well. I was second top scorer. And um, they had to make a cut because of one of the top players coming back and I was the one that was expendable so yeah they told me don't give up um, you know you had a you did a great job and you know your time is coming so I took some you know some pride out of that and went back and continued to work on my game but obviously got to eat and I had I had two young sons at the point a stepson and my son CJ and I had to feed them so I started school teaching uh, I was a school teacher for, for a year at Far Rocky High School. Wow, that's and, pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. I, I was always around education and, and sport. And then I went ahead and, um, you know, once I finished that program, I, I then um, uh, took off and went back to Wichita and, uh, and seen if I could get back into being around my boys again and stuff. And I and, uh, got a trial to uh, another agent to Kansas City, Kansas City Kings. And they had uh, a former NBL player there named Marlon Redmond and they had a former general manager in the NBA named Billy McKinney. And you know, they had some really good guards. Phil Ford was the number one draft pick from North Carolina. So I battled for three days there in that camp and uh, and they cut me by the end of the week. So at that point, I was working on a trash truck. That was my job. I used to say, the trash that trash is my cash. <laughs> and I used to go yeah, I, I read about that in your in your book. You did mention that. Yeah, that was a yeah, that was an interesting job. I, you know, strictly independent. You know, it's not like today where you just sit in the truck and press the buttons. And no, you had to jump out and go get the trash. And, uh, Keeps you fit. Uh, particularly in the winter time when the snow was on the ground and things like that. Out of that Kansas City camp, that's why I always tell my players that you never know who's watching. So when you step over the white line, you need to be ready to go. And think about it as being your, your last opportunity to impress. 
and um, and sure enough, by, by doing so, uh, a gentleman who became the director of coaching in Brisbane and brought so many players out here, great players, to Australia and introduced them to the game here. Uh, David David Atkins, uh, he called me, uh, his agent in the States called me, and then he said, uh, a gentleman by the name of David Atkins wants to speak to you from Australia. I said, really? Okay. Um, sure enough, um, they contacted me through my university, and uh, next thing you know, I was on a plane. <laughs> you know, within three, four days later, I handed in my trash truck and, and flying to Australia. So, uh, you know, I landed the day before the first game, and that's when my Australian career took off. Hey everyone, I really hope you're enjoying this chat with the Black Pearl Cow Bruton. I'm very, very sorry to interrupt, but you know, we got to do what we got to do, right? If you missed last week's episode, so this is episode 13, so if you missed episode 12, I had the pleasure of sitting down, having a great chat with former Carlton, Adelaide, and GWS Ruckman, Sam Jacobs. Now, not only was Source a great player, a great ruckman, but he is a lovely bloke. He was more than happy to sit down, have a chat about his career. We talk about a lot of different topics, growing up in Ardrossan, coming to the AFL system, playing four years at the Blues, uh, shifting back to South Australia and playing for the Adelaide Crows. We talk about the heartbreaking 2012 preliminary final loss to Hawthorne. We talk about the tragic death of Phil Walsh in 2015. We talk about the, the death of his brother Aaron in 2017, along with the 2017 grand final loss to Richmond. We talk about the preseason camp, and we talk about the crazy 2020 season that was heavily impacted by COVID-19. Here's a little snippet of it. No doubt Richmond came to play a lot more than we did, and yeah, we started the game well, but we probably weren't playing like you said how we wanted to, and I think that second quarter, we were able to sort of rally a little bit. We went in at nine points down at half-time, but it felt like we were down by nine goals at half-time. Like, the rooms were just really flat, and I think everyone was sort of a bit shell-shocked. And like you said, like we were sort of the warm favourites going into the game. And But Richmond, you know, as we've learned now, are one of the greatest teams of the modern modern era. And um, they obviously played the game on their terms and how they wanted to, and um, they've been able to replicate that since. So, you know, for us, it was once again a lot of learnings and um, they probably the game goes really quickly um, so you sort of got to really cash in when it's your moment because the game flies by and you just got to make sure you take all your opportunities you can Source Jakers what a man what an absolute gentleman a much loved figure of the AFL definitely definitely go back and, and listen to that chat but for now let's get back to Cal Bruton so did you know anything about Australian basketball prior no Nothing at all. Matter of fact, I wasn't really familiar with Australia at all. You know, I mean, just the simple things that everyone hears. You know, you kangaroos. <laughs> down, Ride kangaroos you know. to training. Yes, I really didn't know much about the indigenous population. We, we don't get that in our history, you know. Um, and um, and so it was a, a learning on the fly from the time I landed, you know, to seeing the cars. Although in Brazil, the cars travel pretty much on the other side of the road as well. Um, but yeah. I, I didn't know anything, and I landed, uh, as I said, the day before the first game. Uh, was met at the airport by uh, a few of the Brisbane Bullets officials, and they took me to my apartment, dropped me off, and told me to head over to the Arkansas Dome, gave me some cash, and said, uh, it'd be good for you to learn how to travel because, you know, you won't have a car, you have to use the public transport. So you just take that ferry to the city and walk up to the top of the hill, you'll see the train station, you just hop on it, three stops, you get off at the Auckland Flower Station, stop and, and you'll see the Auckland Dome from there on the platform. 
I said, oh, okay. So if you can be there in, in a couple hours, um, we'll look forward to seeing you. You know, we'll work you out a little bit. Um, and we got some uh, people that want to interview you. So sure enough, I followed directions. And I got there. And I got to the platform and I looked. I'm like, jeez. Uh, they told me Orchid Dome. I don't see any dome around here. <laughs> <laughs> I had played in the New Orleans Superdome, so I was expecting, you know, some something big and round. <laughs> you know. And they told me to walk down the steps and you know, about a, you know, two hundred meters away you'll see uh, the the walking dome. I, I started walking, I saw a big sign that said basketball and a tin shed. I thought that was probably just the facial. <laughs> Let me walk through here and then I'll be in, see the other side of the dome. And they said when I walked in, Welcome to the Orchid Dome. Uh, I looked around, geez, a two-court stadium. With, What's this? <laughs> so it became it became my second home. I, I practically lived there, honing my skills and, and getting, you know, trying to get right for this national, first year of the National Basketball League. So that first season for the Bullets, you the coach was Bob Young, wasn't it? Correct, yes. God bless him. He passed away last year. It was last year or early this year? Yeah, I think it was like, uh, yeah, it might be early this year. Yeah. Yeah, very sad. Yeah, he was uh, he was kind of thrown in the position because there was no one else really available, and uh, I think he enjoyed coaching junior kids rather than the senior level. But he did a great job with us. You know, we we probably uh, we probably was the top three or maybe top two team, best teams going down in the second half of the season. You know, the first half we obviously get used to each other. We had another important name. Uh, Dan Hickett, but Bob Young just, you know, we trained twice a week or something, but I was in the gym every day and so was Dan Hickett, six foot eleven, uh, native Bird City, Kansas, and played at K State. So him and I were the import duo, very, very opposite of each other. And uh, and then of course, um, we went ahead and made a run, but you know, back then it was no playoffs. It was just the top two teams finishing playoff for the championship, but I finished up leading the league in scoring, uh, 33 a game, and, um, and was invited to Melbourne to watch the grand final and collect my my hardware for that award, along with Ken Richardson. God bless him as well. He passed away a couple few years ago, and um, and Ken was the player coach uh, for West Adelaide, I think, and uh, back then, and you know, he won the MVP. And I was the leading scorer, and we watched the grand final, which was great. Uh, Canberra versus St. Kilda, which was a one-point thriller. And then uh, after I finished that season, I went back to Brisbane, and Geelong offered me a deal to come visit. So I actually um, had an opportunity to stay down with another late person's past known, was instrumental in my life, Rex Stewart, who was the chairman of the Geelong Cats. Had me come stay with him for a weekend, and he was so keen to get me that he was prepared to bring out one of my mates and have him play for the team so that he can endorse it back to me while I was in the States with my family. And, uh, and sure enough, that gentleman, Walter Murray, and gee, I'm calling on Leco call, of course, calling off the deceased here. You know, he's another friend that passed away. He was, uh, he was a great player. They loved him down in Geelong and we were hoping to bring him back with me, but, um, you know, he, the money was tight. He wanted an extra 50 bucks. They wouldn't give it to him, which was sad. Um, and I ended up getting the opportunity to bring two other mates with me. Um, one of my teammates from Wichita State and a homeboy from New York City, another one named Johnny Rebels. And Johnny still lives here today. But uh, Steve went back to Kansas to become a parole officer. And, and yeah, we, we 
went on to have some success there in Geelong, and uh, and my career kind of skyrocketed from there. Geelong was was uh, the only club because Brisbane said uh, they couldn't afford to bring my family out, and I said, well, I'm I'm sorry, I won't be able to come back. And uh, Dave Atkins brought out Brian Banks to replace me from Nebraska, but um, Geelong offered to bring my family out as well as two of my mates. <laughs> so that's what you know struck the deal there. So I picked. He said they wanted to build a team that can get into the National League. And um, and so I came back to Geelong with the family. They, they looked after us really well. Um, you know, we were able to rent a house. That was the first home that my family had been in, able to live in together. Um, CJ was four years old and Ellie was eight. My wife was um, uh, was given, was pregnant, and, and we had our youngest son, Austin, born in December 1980 in the, in the Melbourne Hospital. So, so yeah, we came runners up to the uh, National League champion St. Kilda in the Victorian competition. Now that was a great sort of uh, you know, launching pad. And then the following year, um, we won the Southeastern Conference and we won a couple other, well, won plenty of tournaments uh, around, you know, the, they call the Kalaya Leisure Time Center tournament and Wayne Goretto, Marlboro, all the country tournaments we were cleaning up. And, uh, and then we got, after we won the Converse Super Challenge, which featured the National League champions, Launceston, uh, West Adelaide Bearcats, the South Australian champions, and St. Kilda, who just come back from the World Club Championships, and, and us being the Seabull champions, we played off in a, a weekend series called the Super Challenge, and we won it. I was the MVP and lead score, and bang, that launched us into the NBL. And uh, yeah, as you mentioned, 1982, we made our debut in the league. Uh, after two, two, three games, they, they sacked the coach, um, put me in as a player coach. Never forget, we lost our first game to another Wadding by 25. They were thinking, oh, geez, maybe that wasn't a good move. And then the next day, we beat Launceston by one. And then we went on to win the next 12 straight. So that was huge. Um, uh, me as a player coach, all I did was change one thing much uh well besides the offense i i instead of training twice a week for three hours each day i got the guys to buy into training every day for one hour and on tuesday and thursday i had them on a running track and we ran for an hour you know sprints and you know just built up uh 400s build up our stamina you know that, that was my game i just wanted the guys to be able to run with me and uh and I was the director of coaching, so I had a ball in my hand all day long covering every school in, in the Geelong and uh, Geelong region, you know, right down to Bellarat, uh, Anglesey, Lawn, you name it. We went there, <laughs> you know, Alcoa, Smelter, we was out in Portland. <laughs> I just covered the whole area running camps and clinics and eventually setting up my own Calvary Skills School as well as the Calvary camps that people came from as far as Queensland come down to little old Geelong. So, so yeah, we built it up and it became reputable and things went from there uh, and we had a, quite a bit of success. What about that 1982 grand final? Because you played against the West Adelaide Bearcats, you, against Al Green and Leroy Loggins, Ken Richardson, Peter Adlai. Why could you not get it done that game? And also, just briefly, what was it like to play with James Crawford, the Alabama Slammer? And there's the ball game. Absolute elation. We see there Al Green and Cal Bruton absolutely elated with the final outcome. Cal Bruton obviously disappointed, 
West Adelaide, the winners of this 1982 National Basketball League final. They were a tough team. When JC had came in uh, to Geelong uh, in 1981, uh, right after we won that Super Challenge, he was on a road trip with us. And um, he didn't play, but when we came back to play the Victorian game, played that game, we had already practiced with him a few times. But then when he uh, uh, went to play in that game, that first game, he snapped his anterior uh, cruciate, and so he was out, you know, for for all of nine months right after that. So we didn't get the chance to see JC until we debuted in the NBL, and and they were they didn't think his leg was strong enough or was going to be uh, healthy enough for him to endure a season. Um, so you know, going through that that year, uh, JC was great to play with because he was such a good athlete and he loved to run and jump. Block shots, you know, he triggered a lot of our fast breaks. But uh, playing against Adelaide, West Adelaide, they were tough. You know, Leroy still today is recognized as the greatest player ever to play here. And he's got a statue up in Brizzy to, uh, to <laughs> submit that, that argument. And uh, Al Green was prolific, you know. He was one of my um, best friends. Matter of fact, he's the godfather of my son, Brooklyn, and I'm the godfather of his son, Antoine. And... Uh, and we, uh, you know, we were competitors. You know, we just really went at each other, being from New York. But then, as you mentioned, the head kid Richardson, you know, who was already an MVP uh, and won several uh, World Cup medals in South Australia. Uh, my nemesis was Ray Wood. You know, Ray Wood was the best defensive player in the league. He had won that award. Peter Ally was was tough as nails. Um, uh, and then they had, you know, guys off the bench that could come in and get the job. There, Brad Dalton. You know, so they had a they had a big team. Our team was was basically a, a locals plus uh, Brad Miley, who was uh, Larry Bird's uh, offset for Indiana State, and it was kind of funny because uh, you know Brad Brad couldn't shoot the ball too well. He had a very awkward looking shot, but he had jump hooks with both hands and he could score around the basket. But uh, he was a defensive specialist, and we thought he was going to be able to lock up Leroy. But that just wasn't to be in that grand final. We were just went berserk, and uh, and that's why they had the edge. They had us down by twenty three points, I think, at one point. We were down twenty at the half. I remember, I remember standing in the locker room saying to the guys, "You know, we're not even gonna take no shots. It's not about shots. You know, it's about us locking down on the D and not giving them any opportunities." And and before you know it, it was a three point game, and um, and we had the ball, <laughs> and I think we got called for a violation or whatever, but, uh, yeah, they were able to squeak out a six-point win that, and that's the reason, I guess, the, you know, the calls, as they always do, you know, you can say that didn't go with us, but at the same time, uh, they were the better team, they were the more experienced team, that was our team's first year in the actual competition, and here we are, under lights, sitting in the first nationally televised game at a packed stadium in Newcastle, and we playing for them a National Basketball League championship, and we're just coming off winning one in the, in the Seagulls. So we were confident guys, but we just weren't up to that standard to compete with a team like West Adelaide. You were very gallant in defeat that year because you were always the underdogs coming in against the, the Bearcats. Yeah, yeah, we, we came back, you know, and that's what we could hang our hat on, you know. It could have been a 40-point blowout in the grand final on national TV. It would have done a lot for the sport. But we, uh, we fought hard. Um, I won the coach of the year that year. Al Green was MVP. Loggins was MVP in the grand final. 
you know, so you had a lot of talent on that court. Ken Richardson, obviously, you know, did his job, and you had Australian representatives and Peter Ally and Brad Dalton. So, you know, there were some uh, top players participating in that game. James Crawford. Um, so we we understood that, you know, we had a ways to go. We had to do some more recruiting. You know, myself being a player coach, I was still learning, too. That's the first time I ever had a role like that. And, um, you know, even though I won the Coach of the Year award, I felt I had so much more to learn about the game. And, of course, the next two seasons in Geelong, we won the Western Division Conference Championships. Uh, but we weren't able to, to move on into uh, any more grand finals. We won semifinals. It wasn't, wasn't like the league had any um, rewards for finishing on top. You know, back then you you actually go on the road. We, we finished on top. And we had to go on the road two out of the three games. You know, and so we would have been better off finishing in fourth or something. Yeah, yeah that's but, that's crazy back how it worked back then. Yeah, but it was good. You know, it was good. It was a good grounding. Uh, and I was desperate to win a national league championship. Uh, it wasn't to be in '83 or '84. Then uh, we won Victorian state titles in both those years. And uh, and that made me proud. And I was an All Star Five player in the NBL both those years, so I felt good about where I was uh, in terms of my game. But I wanted a I wanted a championship ring. And uh, Geelong uh, came under new ownership. The new owner came in and said that he wanted me to step off as a player coach and just play. And I said, well, that'd be fine. But then he threw the uh, the curveball at me and said. Uh, and uh, since we uh, are now going to reduce your role, we're going to have to reduce your salary as well. <laughs> well how's that? Put it in half. And back then, you know, I was, like I said, family of three. I got a mortgage. Uh, I'm covering all the, the schools in Geelong doing the uh, schools program. I'm also selling shoes at Vogue Shoes. And so my, you know, my, my workload was like up to the roof. And now this guy wants to take my $26,000, $27,000 salary and cut it in half. He said, well, if you don't accept it, then we won't pay you anything. And I said, well, that's your call. You know, and sure enough, uh, they stopped paying me. I, uh, I then took my role up full-time at the, at the uh, uh, Vogue shoe store. And uh, they put me in, in selling women's shoes. Going to the back, back and forth. I have 10 boxes out there. I was sprinting. And, you know, trying to sell, trying to sell some ladies some limousines for their feet. <laughs> you know, so I ended up um, going up to Brisbane. Brian Curl had uh, lost the, the grand final that year, and he he uh, asked me would I be interested in, in joining him. And uh, I flew up there for their launch team where he was planning on taking them. Uh, I held the ball and took a, a photo shot, which was a sponsor's ball that donated twenty five thousand dollars to the club. And I took a photo with that ball, which kind of ignited the fury in Geelong. When I went back, they said, so are you going to Geelong now or not? I said, well, are you going to pay me my full salary or not? <laughs> and they said, no, we told you what the offer is. I said, well, you've asked the question. And about three months later, two months later, yeah, it was two months later, I ordered the truck uh, to come pick up our, our things and move into to Queensland. And, uh, and here come the owners. Yeah, like, like four of them. Drove over my house and the president and said, oh, no, we didn't think it would go this far. We're happy to pay all the back pay. And, and I just said, no, I'm sorry. It's too late. You know, we, we, we're going. And that, that was it. We packed up and uh, and we moved to Brisbane. And, 
and the rest is history. He went up there. I, I had a chance to debut for Australia uh, after sitting out for three years after gaining my citizenship. I uh, went to the World Championships in Europe. Unfortunately, I was injured during that period, but you know, it was nice just to, to have that jersey on. And um, and then I was enough to win a championship with the Brisbane Bullets. And that, to me, was what I was after. And after securing that role, I was I was pretty pretty excited about my future. And I thought, now I'm ready to, to elevate from that point on. Referee says, fellas, take a break. It's half time. Hey everyone, I just want to say a very big thank you to those who have engaged with A5Q. I really do appreciate all the support. I trust you're enjoying delving into all things Australian sport and hopefully you will continue to stick around. It would be a massive help if you could please do me a solid. Subscribe to the podcast and hit me up with a rating and a review. Gaining as much positive feedback as possible helps boost my visibility and it allows the podcast to be seen by other Australian sports tragics out there. Now, enough of that. Let's get back into it because the second half of A5Q is about to get underway. 1985, as you said, you won your first championship with Leroy Loggins and John Dorge and Ron Radliffe. Coached by Brian Curl, you, you crushed the 36ers, but then the year after, you play the same team and lose to what was known as the Invincibles with, uh, with Ken Cole's 36ers. But after that, you had a, a public fallout with Brian Curl and, and you were sacked from the club. How difficult was that period and, and how did the Wildcats come into the picture? Yeah, that was difficult. You know, after, like I said, winning a championship and losing a championship, you um, you feel like you're still at the top, you know, you're at the top of the tree, just one of the top two teams. But um, Brian uh, was saying to me that, you know, that grand final that I was in a personal duel with Al Green which wasn't the case at all. And, um, you know, they were hungry after we had beat them in the second game of, of a three-game series. And I kind of you know, elevated my game to another level. Uh, I'm still coming off the bench after Brian decided that he wanted to start uh, start me there. And we, um, uh, most of the time, I find myself coming into the game and we're down and I'm asked to do more. So I top scored with 31 and 38 those last two games. And the paper read that uh, I had a solo one-on-one battle or something like that with Al Green, and there wasn't any truth in that. And uh, I was just trying to help our team because Leroy was in foul trouble, and, and I think he actually fouled out of that game. And I was just trying to, to turn it up a little bit and put the pressure on him. But nevertheless, um, me and Brian uh, didn't see eye to eye on, on what he described there. And um, he told me that he was bringing in a younger player to, to fill in for me and and then my services were no longer needed so that that was that was pretty much it i just sat home and uh prior to that i had met uh bob williams who just bought the first wildcast in adelaide and um i met him through connie winton who was the uh marketing lady for the brisbane bullets she's the one that actually elevated our status there she was a university transfer and she basically her and her husband were were involved uh, in Queensland, and she got she got the, the nod from Bob Williams to help her help him build the first Wildcats profile up. So she suggested that you know maybe he should look at me as a coach. And I think at that point he was almost decided on Kim Cole, but um, uh, he agreed to look at it. So he never called me. He just I guess did his due diligence and uh, 
uh, I just met him on the elevator coming off and he told me he'll, he'll see me again. He congratulated me on my basketball game, liked the way I played. And then next thing you know, when I was we're fielding phone calls from other clubs to see where I was going to be going to, um, it got a bit nerve-wracking because I didn't want to go to Sydney or Melbourne. Uh, having been to Geelong, I, I preferred the, the country town over the city. I'm from New York City, but my young family, I didn't want them exposed into the fast life just yet. And uh, and I was really conscious of trying to find a place. And I thought, first, I've only been over there one time, and I really liked it. Uh, I thought, oh, that'd be a good spot to go to because they, you know, during my due diligence, they had never had a winning season. And um, they, you know, at that point, at some at few times I played against them, we really gave them a good spanking. So I thought, gee, if I can go over there and maybe revamp the program, that that would be fantastic. And then finally I received that call from Bob Williams offering me the job. And uh, next thing you know, I was on the plane to Perth for, for a couple weeks to, to put together a team. Uh, Ken Edwards, who became the administrator for the Olympics at Homebush, and um, uh, he and Connie Winton uh, uh, became partners, and they helped me establish the Perth Wildcats, as you know it, uh, with Bob Williams. We were sort of that admin team and general managers team to put together the group to go forward. And Bob, only request for me was to put the team together that can win the championship. And I told him I can do that. And uh, he gave me a check, uh, roughly a hundred grand. And I went out and signed the, the local players straight away uh, and just doubled their salaries. Because back then, you know, players don't make wasn't making more than $3,000, $4,000 a game. Yeah, I'm sorry, uh, it was $3,000 That was hardly any money, but all the players had full-time jobs. So they used to train in the afternoon, and I thought if I could double their salaries, then I'd get them trained a little bit earlier so they could still have some home life. And uh, we were moving into a new stadium, the Superdome, and that was kind of exciting. Uh, seeing about 5000 and we sold it out not one, you know. But prior to that, we had won the preseason classic against Adelaide, the champions. And we had beat them twice in the span of three days. And that kind of put all eyes on us. Bob had us, you know, he offered me the opportunity to make us a professional team. So I made sure that all the guys were dressed up. We had nice gear we ordered. We had Nike spots in our shoes. Uh, uh, we wore suits to the game, you know. So, so everybody looked at us as a, a new era of professionalism. So really proud of what we've been able to establish there and how we were able to uh to put wildcats on the map right from the dot one yeah because you and bob williams you really led the way because 1987 was the the wildcats made the finals for the first time and you actually made the grand final series against brisbane and you haven't missed the finals all the way to now 34 years later yeah that's been a fantastic run you know obviously the first five years, uh, 87, 88, 9, 9, 90, and 91, this was my involvement. I, I've kind of evolved from being the player coach in 87, 88, to being the playing general manager in 89, to being the coach and general manager in 90, and winning the championship. And then in 91, I was just a general manager until um, I decided to leave uh, just to progress my coaching opportunities because that's what I love doing. But yeah, Bob was a, a magnificent owner. He, um, you know, he was a, a professional businessman uh, with his own company, Interstruck, 
uh, building all the high-rise buildings around around Perth. He uh, he was a yachting guy, so he had this yacht. He used to do the Sydney to Hobart yacht race, you know, and, and the Fremantle down there. Um, you know, he just opened up so many doors for all our players, you know, to come in. But then, I think during the crash, stock market crash, whatever, he he hit some hard times, and uh, and Kerry Stokes came in. And that was just another level of professionalism, you know. Kerry was obviously a media mogul. You know, he brought his TV station in, and um, he gave me uh, some opportunities that that I was really grateful for. He put me on his private jet and sent me to the States uh, to bring back a project. And I was able to secure uh, the rights for uh, NBA Entertainment for Australia by changing all the tapes from NTSC to PAL, some of them here in Australia, and uh, we were bidding for world championships and everything. So, Bob and Kerry were a tremendous team, and Kerry helped me establish myself as a businessman as well. You know, to learn that side of it, and uh, uh, you know, I used to deliver practice for him into the uh, Kimberley and the Pilbara, you know, in the off season, and go motivate the, the staff there and uh, learn more about you know that side of his business. But um, yeah, it was it was fantastic run for us uh, 1991 winning championship so you know when I look back at what I was able to assist with uh, those owners and plus the team was to build a program that played in three grand finals in five years winning two and in uh, and, and, and the finals as you said every single year since so so I was very you know chuffed at it really disappointed I wasn't able to continue on as coach because I thought you know, after everything I put in I deserved the opportunity to at least defend the title one year that's the way I sold it to him if we don't win it again you can get Pat Riley you know, for a lot. I can't it's just that I would love the opportunity because I just lost my mom that year before and uh, I was going through a tough period in my life personally uh, uh, separated from my wife of, of 11 years at that age and it was a real real tough period I um, I found it challenging just just to stay afloat, you know, myself. Because you know, when you when you're going through that kind of, uh, I guess I was depressed, but I didn't press the button. I had had a tough time in my life back in New York with that that period where my mom thought I was in really well and she wanted me to get some psychological help. I ended up in a, a state hospital for for three weeks and. Uh, and as soon as I got out of there, I jumped on the bus and got the heck out of New York because I, I just knew I couldn't stay in there because I was, I was going down the drain, you know. So, so to come to uh, the Perth situation and realize what I had been through previously, that's the only thing that kept me from collapsing again because I, I knew hard times don't last, but tough, don't last, but tough people do. And I had to pull out my New York toughness to, to get out of that situation, and uh, and it was a. Uh, yeah, it, was, it never got easier, that's for sure. Um, and I ended up packing up in 91 of May, I think it was, to go to accept the deal to go to Hobart to be a coach with the promise of, of being the, uh, uh, having an opportunity to buy into the team and everything. But it didn't quite work out that way. As soon as I landed in Tasmania, they sacked the uh, general manager, who was the guy who recruited me along with Dave Atkins' influence. And um, now I don't know anyone down in Hobart except a couple of the players that I had actually coached. And while they were in high school when they were in Brisbane, um, uh, young Luke Dribble, uh, Gribble, I'm sorry, Luke Gribble went to Bentley High School. And, and I had uh, 
of course, Ray McDank. I coached in Geelong and, and Sean Dennis, who came to my first basketball camp in 1980 in, in Geelong. You can see his picture in my book, <laughs> you know? Yeah, so I kind of, uh, you know, went down there not knowing exactly what background Hobart had other than they had another losing season like Burke. Never had a winning season. Oh, they did have one winning season. I'm sorry. They, they went 14 and 12 one year. But I was hoping to build up on that. And Dave Atkins was coaching them there. But uh, that wasn't a big. It was a hard slog. We didn't have any money. Couldn't buy any players. Relied on, on, on players who I can identify with. I actually brought down David Stiff, who's a rookie. You know, he's one of the more talented rookies. And now he became the, the equal six-time championship went along with uh, CJ and David Mott. Wagstaff is another one. Yeah, basically it's, you know, I was always seemingly, seemingly having to go to teams that, that were on the bottom. I never got a chance to just go to a top team and say, okay, Cal, here you go. Here's the keys to this car. See how far you can drive it. No, I had to always go to programs and build them up. And some of them were more challenging than others, but I like that when I when I was able to get on top, people that I wanted around our program, we were successful. And on and off the court, that was a shame that uh, you know we we'll get to that. I suppose when we when we get to Tampa, but yeah, that was that was a difficult difficult period in Perth, uh, not being able to continue on, and then going to Hobart and not having success that I had hoped to, and then have back Perth, not being able to get any work around the sport uh, at the top level. So I basically took on a role coaching in the state basketball league at Junior Lock and uh, City Wolves and had a former NBL player then Vince Kelly, Machine Gun Kelly, who was uh, a championship coach at that team. So I came in to support him because uh, he didn't want to coach anymore. So I came in as a player coach and I brought my son CJ in because he had just uh, didn't feel comfortable in his role with the Wildcats and, and probably we, his mom and I, more uncomfortable with what he was doing off the court because he was he was working at a petrol station and he had to drop all his courses at university because you know coach Davis and Hurley at the time had changed the training sessions from morning uh, from afternoon to mornings and so he had to drop his classes and we weren't happy with that because uh, you know as we know education is the key and that always comes first yeah so we we organized for him to actually get out and go to the U.S. For, for an opportunity to go to a college and university and offer them a scholarship. But then we got word that the NCAA were, were eyeballing him because of uh, Andrew Gaze that played over there. And he had came from, obviously, Australia. And, and he was recognized as an amateur after playing three years in the league. And then, of course, I knew I had David Stiff, who was attending Boston University, uh, attended uh, Boston University. He had played for me for a year, but CJ was on a minimal contract. I think all the, I think it was 250 bucks a week, you know, and uh, the NCAA was really on him about about that. So the junior college didn't worry. He went into Indian Hills and won a national championship and MVP in the national tournament. And then, of course, when he got the scholarship to go to Iowa State under Tim Floyd, who became the Chicago Bulls coach, um, they got him uh, saying that CJ was a professional and they offered him a scholarship. So that was the end of that episode. And But it was fun back in Perth having the opportunity to play with my son in the backcourt at Junior Lop. And, uh, and we lit up a few teams there. And uh, unfortunately, we didn't win the championship because he left early. I, I think if he had stayed on, we, we could have won it. But 
you know, we wanted to get him acclimatized for his college opportunity, and uh, and we let him go. So yeah, that was my roller coaster ride. And, you know, back in Perth, I I did some part time work uh, uh, as a a postie. I was on a postie bike delivering the mail. I was unloading trucks at four in the morning to you know, again to try to support my sons and getting them the funds to get over the university. My my son Austin ended up, as I mentioned, going to uh, the university with CJ after he graduated, and uh, and then I just uh, settled down uh, and had a, another daughter, and had another child, I should say, which was a daughter, and tried to start setting up shop there in Perth, uh, working United Ways, sort of learning more about this charity business until I got that call, come to Canberra, and that was five years, I think it was five years between, between jobs, so... Oh, more than that, it was like nine years for NBL jobs, but five years between, you know, coaching in the in the state league and then coaching in the NBL. So, yeah, that was a bit of another challenge. Always accept the challenge with another team on the bottom of the ladder. Yeah, that Canberra Cannons, that was a time where the NBL obviously wasn't in the greatest financial position. What was it like to be involved with Canberra back in 2003? That was probably the worst nightmare of my life, bro. I got to take you back to 2000, you know, where where I was asked to come in, and they were one and eleven, and uh, and Herb McEachin gave me a call, and of course Herb and I were the first two Black Americans to play in the NBL. We've been best buddies ever since, and uh, and so he called me and said, "Yo, man, we're gonna need some help, and we think you're the guy that can do it. Would you be prepared to come down for three months and and see if we can turn this thing around? Because we have, we in financial trouble." But we also got a good team, and we think we can do better than what we're doing. So I accepted. Uh, senator Peter Cook, who was the Western Australia state senator, and he was also the deputy leader of the opposition, offered me a opportunity to stay at his home in uh, here in Monica, in Canberra. And and so I came and had the keys to the car, and had the keys to his house. Never forget the first day I kind of came out, and sure enough, uh, the next door neighbor, <laughs> Peter Costello, <laughs> looked at me and thought I was burglaring. I was burglaring his house because I had the TV in my hand. <laughs> oh, no. Monitor. And before I got to my car parked out front, on Peter's car, there's the police coming up surrounding me. I had to put the TV down and put my hands on the roof and say, I'm the new coach of the Cameron Cannons. I know why you're here. Peter Costello just called you. <laughs> I saw him. And they started laughing. So, well, we better take you back and just say hello to him so he won't make that mistake again. And then he had already called Peter Cook. And uh, he was quite embarrassed, of course. But, um, but yeah, I was, prof- I was profiled at his best. That's how I started my career off here. But we went on and had a run that, that took us one game from making the playoffs from a 1-13 start. And we lost to my son, CJ, who dropped 38 on us. And I couldn't believe it. I, I thought he was going to be sick that day and not play at all. But he, he came out and played big. And then um, the next year, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Perth wanted me to, I'm sorry, Kappa wanted me to sign on again. I had been away from my family daughter at that time for, oh, geez, close to three months. I seen her once at that time. So I was anxious to get back to Perth. I had just bought a beautiful home there. And uh, didn't live in it, but freaking two months before I was over in Canberra. And when I left, uh, also Eddie Groves wanted me to come to Brisbane. And he told me just to hold on, hold off before I do anything. And I, uh, 
through Peter Cook's guidance, uh, he said, Cal, you can do anything you, you want here. You know, I'll help you. Uh, you know, if you want to purchase into the team because the team was in financial trouble, we can look at that. So I was kind of really keen. I was thinking, gee, I'm finally getting someone to believe in me and all that. And I agreed to sign with Perth for the next four years. I mean, with the camera the next four years. I went back to uh, Perth to saddle up. But my assistant coach at the time uh, in Canberra, um, can't even think his name now, but he, he went on to become the head coach at Brisbane and under Eddie Groves. And Eddie was very upset. What they did was snatch five of the players that that we had. <laughs> and, and that made our squad just depleted. So Randy Rutherford, our star guard, Damian, Damian Ryan was another top player. Uh, Troy Pillen was out the truck. He was one of our better players. And and then you had Jamie Perlman leave to go to Cavs. But everyone left. But when I was in Perth, the whole team just defected. And when I came back, we had the worst season ever. I think we only won three games. And then the following year, uh, the club was back in voluntary administration. It looked like it was folding. That's only my second year on my contract. But I was able to secure some support with the Southern Cross Club. And they told me that, you know, they'd give me a, a year to put the team back together again. And uh, I flew to the States. And that's when I met uh, Tom Izzo at Michigan State and caught up with Magic, who I met previously when I was with Perth, um, and was able to get the services of Gabe Thomas and then eventually uh, Mike Chappelle. And back then, the league felt bad for Cans and us and said that we could have three imports and everyone else had two. So by us having three imports, I was able to secure some three top class athletes and we were ready to go. And I believe, just my thoughts, and of course, you know, people can say what they want, but I believe we were in a position to win it and the league didn't, didn't want to feel that one. <laughs> and sure enough, um, Right when we went to Michigan State to meet with Magic and play with him in his last game as a professional, and uh, we had a great, great uh, trip. And then we came back and we played a home game because we had a bye weekend. We came and played. We won that game. We're sitting number two on the ladder and uh, or equal second. And sure enough. We had the uh, owners come to us and say, uh, back in voluntary administration, and we're not allowed to trade no more or anything, and that was it. And I just thought that that took our team right down the backside and out the door uh, eventually. And and I had a chance to raise the money and buy the team, and the NBL, Peter Ally was running it then, um, tried to sell us to New Zealand. And I, I couldn't believe it. You know, here it is. You know, one of the guys who's been here since that one, uh, or been involved in the league in and out, but I was there for a long period of time, recognized as a Hall of Famer and everything. He wouldn't give me a chance to, to purchase the team. And I had the money, had the support, had the sponsors, had everything going, and they said no and offered it to someone else. So that just kind of, that, that threw my uh, my love for, for the game just about out the window when I had to go through that exercise. And, of course, uh, Canberra's never been back in the competition. An iconic brand uh, that won three National League titles, got jerseys hanging up in the rafters with Phil Smythe and Herb McKeachin and, and others. And uh, and all of a sudden, they just dispensed like a whole 
pair of shoes right out the door. <laughs> you know, so so that was it for me. Uh, you know, like I said before, for a minute to the opportunity came up for Razorbacks, but yeah, that was probably the most disappointing time in my career at that point. And I had some downs, but that that hit the rock bottom because I didn't know what I was going going to be able to do. But I knew that I wanted to make sure my son CJ got his his start. He was the last one to leave. Everyone else got jobs. He stayed with me. Said, "Come on, Dad, we can try it again. We can build up." And I I had almost the tank was on empty, you know. And, and you had enough. Yeah, I had I had enough, so I got him. You know, hooked up with Brian Gorgian in Sydney, and uh, the rest is history. He's gone on to win those six titles from there, so so that's been good. Yeah, just on on your son CJ, he is the equal most successful in terms of of championships. He's won two Grand Final MVPs and two-time NBL First Team and most improved, and also represented Australia. I'm sure that comes a great sense of of pride to you. See your son be so successful in this league. Oh yeah, no question. Yeah, he's a uh, you know he's a wonderful person. You know that's what I'm most proud of. You know, second to him being a great father and a fabulous husband. You know I see him and his wife Jessica and talk to them often. Uh, they love the game. You know, and my grandson Rio looks like he's going to be a player. You know he's already as tall as I am and and he's only 13. Uh, that's not saying a lot for me though, but <laughs> so right, I'm I'm the same height as you. I'm five foot eight. <laughs> But yeah, CJ coaches at the junior level, the high school level, he's coaching the state team, he's coaching the Bullets, he's been assistant coach with uh, the Australian national team recently, he's, uh, you know, he just puts so much time in the game and promoting and marketing. Well, he's CJ, my version times two, you know, and he's definitely uh, the goat of our family in terms of playing and winning. I mean... I've had about six titles too, but they had to add up the Victorian titles and the Seagull titles and NBL title championships. And then I got my six or so, but, you know, he's done it under trying circumstances. You know, clubs have folded. He wasn't able, he wasn't being paid. He's been able to sort of suck it up and just keep it moving and go build teams and, and, and players around and love him. Uh, I see it all the time. He gets so many calls to help people out. He finds it hard to ever say no, you know, and um, he continues to be a shining star. And, and uh, you know, being a, a captain for an Australian team as a, as a young man, you know, you, you can't just look at that and say, wow, that's, I can look at that and say, wow, that's, that's a huge achievement, particularly being a, a person of color and having that opportunity uh, and his teammates all swear by him. So, so that to me is the ultimate statement of what he's, you know, brought to the table for Australian basketball, and and I always like to say between us, shoot, we got eight championships. We got more than everybody except Perry. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, he's he's done it. He's done it well, and and uh, I'm hoping that he does get his shot to continue on in that space of, of coaching, and and uh, whatever I can do, obviously uh, I'm here to help. But we. I got two young boys here now that are both representing, uh, one of them is representing Canberra, the ACT. Uh, the other is, is playing for me in the, in the local state league on the 19s and doing quite well. Both of them got ambition to go further with their game. And um, yeah, I'm just excited about just you know being around the game again. I, I coach uh, 
currently a under-19 team. I, I coach a primary school. <laughs> you know, I don't know how many Hall of Famers around here actually rolling up their sleeves, going to primaries and trying to coach young kids and teach them the fundamentals. And, of course, running my camps all over the country, I deal with kids of all ages, you know. So so I, I, I just look at that's my, my life's work right now, you know, to try to give back in that space, try to help the game grow from the bottom up. And uh, I'm getting some opportunities now uh, in the off side, like being involved with the basketball Australia's emerging coaches. Uh, I was selected for them. Uh, the NBL rap working group trying to create better opportunities for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander youth. And uh, my work with AFL Sports Ready makes me proud that uh, they've given me the vehicle to go around and, and try to help kids uh, establish some uh, careers. Um, uh, whether they be in vocation or whether they be in professional uh, or, or actually studying in university. Uh, so, yeah, my plate's been, been full for, for a little while now. And uh, I'm, I'm kind of, yeah, trying to just take it one step at a time until I can build up something for to help my family uh, continue with this legacy of, of giving. So that's what we're working on at the moment. Last break, I promise. Three-quarter time here on A5Q, and another guest I've got coming on the show in due time is actually mentioned in this podcast, ironically. It's Brian Curl, who, of course, is the inaugural NBL championship coach, won the first two championships in NBL history, 1979 and 1980, with the St. Kilda Saints, and later would, would coach Cal Bruton in 1985 to that championship, as well as in 1987 with the Brisbane Bullets. Here's a little snippet of it. I worked and worked and worked and worked on my fitness and my quickness and, and things like that, getting up and down the court and just doing, you know, I was a role player. My role was to set screens and to rebound. Um, you know, uh, I got my most points when uh, when shooters like Eddie Palabinsis or Kenny Cole or Tony Barnett and uh, David Lindstrom, players like that, when they had a bad night and missed some shots and I got the rebound and put them back in, that's where I got my points from. There was no offense around me but that that was my role i was prepared to play it and look where it got me so you know i'm i'm happy about that so uh, you know it, it was just it's incredible you know and i think too you know and i see kids i coach kids with a hundred times more talent than what i've got but they don't want to do the hard work you know to get there they they think that it's just going to come to them and it's not going to come to you you've got to get out there and work for it that's that's the key factor to it and and I did that. I really did. Brian Curl has got another fantastic story and definitely one you're going to want to listen to. So stay tuned for that one. But for this moment right now, let's get back to Cal Bruton. Cal, we're just about to, to close up now. I just want to get your thoughts just real quickly on the 1990 championship. I know we, we touched on it briefly, but what made that team so good? Because you had Ricky Grace there, you had the Alabama Slammer, you had Tiny Pinder, Mike Ellis, a few ups and downs throughout the season, you know, some off-court stuff as well. But what made that championship so good? And also, what does it mean to you to be the first ever Perth Wildcat championship coach? Because that's something no one will ever take away from you. The clocks strike zero, and the Perth Wildcats are the 1990 Hungry Jacks National Basketball League champions by a margin of 23 points, 109 to 86. It's been a marvellous year of basketball, and I would say a fitting three-game series to end it on. Yeah, no, Dan, I appreciate that. I'm, yeah, I'm very proud to be that. Um, it was a, 
I challenge you, yeah, it probably was understated, <laughs> you know. But, you know, I was proud of, that, of, the, of the team that I put together. I just always felt confident that we were capable of winning. Um, and when we actually won it, you know, the players uh, from the captain, Mike, Mike Ellis, to um, a role player, Eric Watson, to uh, one of my favorite players uh, in that team was Trevor Torrance, who was just um, the, f the best athlete I had played with. Uh, everyone was probably say JC uh, was, but in terms of uh, of just sheer athleticism, running, jumping, all that, Trevor Torrance was, well, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say he was uh, any less than JC, because he, he was smaller. A little bit smaller, but boy, could he get up and go! And he was he was the fastest member of the team. So uh, I was very proud of the teammate of Tiny Pinter. I know, you know he's uh, obviously made some mistakes, but the, the heart that he brought into that team could not be underestimated. And uh, and without him, there's no championship in Perth. So I can tell you that from the bottom of my heart. He he brought that eye of the tiger, uh, that ferocity, that tenacity, and he wouldn't let us go down. He was just that guy. And, um, you know, everyone played a role. Right? It was just a, a great, great team effort. I mean, right down to small lesser lights like uh, Craig Evans and uh, Robbie Dempster. You know, Ricky Grace was the obviously the, the, the quick fire guard that I brought in to replace myself. Um, he became the catalyst uh, behind that move and of uh, us winning the championship. And and because his quickness and his speed was second to none in the competition, and I sort of recognized that in doing my my homework on bringing him here, proved to be that that player uh, after winning the MVP in that grand final, and it was just a you know it was just a good a good year to see how some teams can deal with adversity and continue to go forward. Some can just hit the wall and collapse. And we weren't that team. And uh, to come through all the things we had to come through, you know, from you know, from losing a player through death, and uh, as as we had to go through that turmoil with, with Tiny, and and also um, coach uh, being removed, and then I'm put in the place to to take the team forward. It's not something I asked for either. You know, this it was it was basically the owners coming to me saying you have to take over until we figure this out because they were so upset with the coach that they they handed over a check to him and told him to take his take his walk and uh that was something that they never discussed with me and i was shocked when they told me that he's done and you're you're taking over i didn't even have a pair of shoes so to come through that and uh and having to uh to weather the storm on you know people booing in the stands i had never been booed before other than opposition and it wasn't my call like bob williams just went to great lengths to say that you know how could anyone sort of been on me that it was really kerry and him that made the decision <laughs> obviously they signed the checks and stuff and i'm not going to influence them to do anything they don't want to do so i had, i was just as shocked as everybody else but then i'm the kind of guy if you call on me yeah i'm gonna answer the bell and that's basically what it was they needed me to to step up into the role and uh, and coordinate, and then we had the assistant coach, who was probably one of my best friends, Glenn Ellis, Mike's my younger brother, was the guy who I sparred with all the time. And and when when I went to Allen to offer him the head coaching job, he he brought on Glenn as his assistant. And then when the team 
has that turmoil, Glenn quit along on behalf with Alan. But to this day, him and I have just the ultimate respect. You know, we see each other, we hug and all that, because he recognized that, you know, it was none of my doing. And I still, to this day, regret that, you know, I had to take drag my family through that, and where my sons were floor wipers, and they looking like, wow, they... They just people cheering me in our hometown, right? You know, but uh, they've come out the other side, so it's all been good. But yeah, I was I'm very proud to be a part of that that championship team. Um, very proud to be the manager and put it all together uh, for for the next year. Uh, and sat through, like I said, half the year where I could see they were on their way. And then I just thought maybe I should try to achieve some of the things I wanted to achieve. And that's where I decided to leave. But um, maybe in hindsight. It would have been nice to hang around for another year because uh, they ended up getting rid of Barry Arnold, <laughs> you know? Yeah, because he took over the next year. That's right. Yeah, so he, he won the next year, the next year he didn't, and then he was gone. Just like that. <laughs> you know, so, you know, you make moves according to the way, you know, life, life takes you and, and your ambition to be a coach. Uh, but as I said, if you look at my record, I'm still a winning coach in the NBL. All the teams I went to never had a winning season when I walked into them, you know. And uh, from right down to the last one, West Sydney Razorbacks, you know, it seems that they always call Cal when when their when their butts hanging out and they about to go down the jungle. They call me up and say, "Oh, can you help us?" You know. And I'm that guy that loves a challenge and uh, would do it every day of the week. So very very excited to have been a part of this league for, as you said, 30 years. Um, I'm more proud of. I, I do around basketball now at the grassroots level, um, as well as you know, doing some positive things at the top. And um, I'm still feeling that the best is yet to come. You know, so um, it's work as usual. You know, I got to get back two eggs in my shoes and beat it up and make like a breeze and blow into this next episode. <laughs> so, so things are going to stay positive on my side. And I'm very, very uh, positive type person. And as long as I got my family and good health and spirits, uh, you know, anything can happen. That's awesome. And just just as we're going to close up now, I just want to ask you just four really quick questions. Throughout your career as a player and a coach, who is the best player you've ever played with and why? Who's the best player you've ever played against and why? Who is the greatest coach you've ever played under and why? And lastly... Who is the best player you have ever coached and why? So the first one, the best player I ever played with, um, well, that's no doubt Leroy Loggins is the best player I ever played with. He was um, uh, the great team man, uh, totally unselfish, can fill up the bucket, comes to practice, play like it's his last game, you know, compete, and and always had fun, always had a smile on his face. Uh, didn't you couldn't get Leroy angry. He, he's just going to walk away, you know. But he was a guy who uh, I come to, and I'm so proud to be on a trophy with his name on it, <laughs> you know, uh, and mine. Although I, I thought my name should have been first in this instance because I kind of went and got him. <laughs> but but uh, that's just the way it is now. But yeah, uh, Leroy was the best player I ever played with. Best player I ever played against. Uh, I have to say. There's two of them, actually. I kind of find it hard to get, pick against. But uh, Jerry Everett from Newcastle, who was a six foot four inch guard from New York, was the 
probably the best athlete I ever played. I mean, he was tough. He could score on anybody. He dunk, he shoot the three, put it on the deck. He was fearless. A fantastic player. We hit some hard time after he finished with Newcastle. And I reckon I could have got him to Perth, which I was trying to do. Uh, best Other best players, no doubt, was Al Green, the mean machine. Um, you know, him and I used to have some battles over the years. You know, we used to just go at each other hard, you know. And uh, as I said, he's a... He's one of my best friends. He's godfather of my son, so that's that's how I look at him. He's awesome. I've had him on the show before. He he's he's fantastic. Yeah, great athlete. You know, he won the store gift. You know, I remember being there. You know, because I used to I used to roll with him all the time. I'll fly that when I had my problems with the Wildcats. And wasn't able to secure the position. Next thing you know, I was sitting in Adelaide with Al. He was consoling me, vice versa. You know, when he had to leave Adelaide to go to Newcastle, he's with me. You know, so we. We cared about each other. His daughters lived with me for two years. Uh, you know, as um, as I tried to help, you know, help our growth at that point in our life. So, no, we just—he was a tough player, but he was also my best, my best friend. Uh, as far as uh, coaches, best coach I ever played under has to be uh, my junior coach Steve Sherwin, who I played all my high school postseason basketball with. I really didn't enjoy my time. It wasn't long enough either playing uh, uh, under Harry Mill at Wichita State. It was just a tough slog and, and we had some uh, complications with you know, obviously being on, on probation and all that. So it was not a happy time. So I didn't really enjoy it. And I found him as a real um, basic coach. But Steve Shallon was a guy who was still in love run, stun, and have some fun. We had athletes. We press up. We up and down the floor. And he gave you the freedom to uh, to play the game the right way. And uh, and if we didn't, well, gee, you'd be paying for that training. So uh, I really, really enjoyed playing for him. And um, I suppose the, the coach I played against, uh, the toughest coach I probably had to come against was uh, what it been. Um, that's a tough question. I always have to say Ken Cole. Ken Cole is uh, is one of my idols here in Australian basketball. Uh, you know, going against his teams, you knew they were going to be prepared. You knew they were going to be hyped up. <laughs> you knew they, they were going. They weren't going to be no backing down. No worries. Even though we beat them convincingly, you just knew they were going to come back stronger the next year. You know, so uh, Ken Cole was probably the toughest. Uh, Coach, I have a coach against, and um, you know, I love him dearly. Just, uh, just the way he went about his business, and the way he dressed, the way he uh, profiled everything. He, he was, he was on his personified all class. So, so I admire him. Best player I'd ever coach would have to be um, JC, I suppose. I, uh, you know, I had to put JC and Ricky on that equal pedestal uh, because I coached JC longer. You know, three years in Geelong. And, um, and and two years in Perth, and each time you were with him, you accelerated. Um, I watched him, you know, grow in his game, add more things to his game. Uh, became a, a pretty decent mid-range shooter. Became a better defensive player as he grew. And remembering, as I mentioned, he was coming off a knee operation uh, when he came here. So to watch him finish up his career as a Hall of Famer uh, was was a proud. For me to sort of have coached him right through. Ricky, I only had him for the one year, which, um, you know, when I brought him in, Alan Black had 
put him in a shooting guard spot. And I didn't look at him as a two guard when I recruited him. I, I was a point guard, and Allen had actually shifted me to a two guard spot as well uh, and put Mike Ellis with the ball. But I felt Mike, um, as he was getting older, was slowing down a little bit, but he was also our best defensive player. So I thought it'd be better for Mike to, to be the two guard to run out on the break and give Ricky the ball and let him push it. And now we got Mike getting the head start. We got Ricky pushing it. And between Trevor, JC, and Tiny, they're going to have to grab that next lane available for you. And we were able to run, stun, and have some fun. So Ricky um, definitely was the catalyst behind you know me coaching my first championship and, and a great playoff decade of the 90s to see him uh, win four championships during that period which is what I set up to do. I wanted Australian Perth Wildcats to be the best team uh, in Australian history. And, uh, and that that was my goal. And I got a chance to start it. Obviously, I didn't get a chance to finish it. Uh, at least I can hang my hat on that. You know, as you mentioned earlier in the broadcast, they've been going 34 years straight. Recognized one of the greatest franchises in, in, in the history of the game here. So, so that's, uh, yeah, that's something yeah, I'm pretty proud of and, and um, yeah, other than that, um, yeah, I'm just proud of Australian basketball last year, USA versus the Australian national team and, and be there for them for that historical historic win was uh, was an absolute fantastic and I remember all the years we used to play against the USA teams and you know, I, I played for Australia against the big eight all stars and we used to wax them up and uh, and then you know, seeing us finally go on tour and then play over there, you have to play against U.S. colleges, but never in my wildest dreams did I think, you know, we were going to be able to beat a USA uh, World Championship slash Olympic team. And I just think that that was a huge, huge achievement for Australian basketball and made me feel that uh, that my, my time here has actually evolved. And, and that was great to see and be a part of Cal, it's been fantastic. You are an icon of the NBL. You're a family man, and I love what you're doing in the community. It's been awesome here to have you on the show, and I wish you all the best in everything you're doing now out of professional basketball. Thank you so much, Dan. I really appreciate, like I said, the platform and wish to share. And, uh, yeah, I will definitely be doing my best to continue going. Uh, as I get older now, 60, 66, I say. You know, it's a 66 years young, my friend. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. I'm just in the fourth quarter, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> Hoping to get to overtime, that's it. Oh, that's it. It's been right, awesome buddy. to have you on. All right, thank you very much, Cal. No, you're welcome. Thank you. Ladies, it's all over. And that's a wrap. Thank you to everyone for tuning into A5Q. Don't forget to spread the word, subscribe, leave a rating. Until next time, old sport.